We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and future. We also acknowledge the contributions of individuals with lived mental health experience. Hello and salam everyone. Welcome to another podcast episode for the Our Place Project, which is brought to you by the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and Vic Health. My name is Adriana and I'm one of the youth volunteers for the Our Place Project and I'm also your host for today's episode. Quick bio about myself. So I'm a recent Master of Public Health graduate and I'm also passionate about community engagement, health promotion and mental health. The current podcast that you're listening to is one of the three activities that is carried out in this project. If you would like to find out more about this project and the other amazing activities that we've been up to, head over to our Instagram page, amwchr underscore youth. And before we begin our show, I'd like to mention that today's episode may contain triggering and sensitive material to some. If you feel overwhelmed or uncomfortable, feel free to pause anytime. So let's begin our show for today. It's been just over a year since COVID-19 hit the Australian shores. COVID-19 has introduced various challenges for us all, and it has forced us to adapt the way we live, work, learn and interact. In Victoria specifically, we had to endure three rounds of lockdown in order to stop the spread of COVID-19, which, as you can guess, has a profound impact on our health and well-being. Vic Health has recently published results of the follow-up survey for their coronavirus Victorian Wellbeing Impact Study, which I must say is a great resource to read through if you want to gain some insight into the struggles of Victorians while living through a pandemic. An interesting finding that I read was that two in five Victorians found it hard to stay connected with family and friends during the second wave of the pandemic. In the context of mental health, having a positive social connection is a crucial factor that promotes positive mental health and well-being. For me personally, I found it extremely difficult to adjust the way I learned because I would usually study with my friends in a public space, like a library for example. And at the time when COVID-19 hit, I was in my final year of my master's degree and I was also completing a research project at the same time, which I think requires a level of commitment and motivation. It was very difficult to gain that motivation without the social connection and presence that I was accustomed to previously. In other aspects of my life, alhamdulillah, all praises to God, I had a relatively stable part-time job and I was able to walk around my neighbourhood in case I feel like I needed to get out of the house. It was a really great opportunity for me to reconnect with nature and discover new parks and walking paths in my suburbs. However, for a period of roughly two weeks in July last year, this was not the case for nearly 3,000 residents from nine inner Melbourne public housing towers. On the 4th of July 2020, the Premier of Victoria announced a hard lockdown for public housing residents where they were immediately detained to their homes. Residents were not allowed to leave their home for any reason, which also means that they were not allowed to get food, medication or any other essential support. And when I first heard of the news, I was very outraged. From a human rights perspective and a public health perspective, there were just so many red flags associated with this announcement. I also had friends who were living in the towers, so I was very concerned for their health and well-being. When I was thinking of a topic for this podcast episode, I knew I wanted to speak about the impact of COVID-19 on our lives. We've seen how COVID-19 has amplified the structural inequalities that exist in our society. 
So just in case, I'll quickly define the term structural inequalities. In very simple terms, structured institutions such as education and healthcare are biased towards certain people in society while marginalising other people in society. So for example, for us Muslims, I feel more comfortable speaking to Muslim psychologists. However, many Muslim psychologists have their own private practice. And unfortunately, if we don't have the money, we can't access them. And that's an example of structural inequality. As young Muslim women living in this country, being aware of the structural inequalities is so important because we are directly impacted by these inequalities. We have the power to voice our concerns and we also have the power to prompt change and improve the way we live. It's also important that we continue to empower ourselves as a community. And one of the ways that we can do that is through storytelling. And that is the purpose of today's podcast. I wanted to shed some light on the issue concerning the public housing community because this incident in itself is a reflection of the systemic inequalities that exist. And there's just so many lessons that we can learn from this incident. And this brings me to introduce my first speaker for today, Dima Abdu. Dima Abdu is an Eritrean Australian living in Australia for the last 17 years, who is also currently residing in the North Melbourne Towers. She is also currently studying biomedical science and aspires to be a professional in the field. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dima. Thank you for inviting me. I also have a second speaker here with me today, Ibtisam Shanino. Ibtisam Shanino is also an Eritrean Australian and she has lived in various countries, including Libya, Sweden, Australia and Canada. She is a tourism management graduate. She is also a mother of three children and is currently working in administration for a local Islamic school. Working with the community and supporting and empowering women is a long-time passion that drives her everyday life. This has also led her to be the co-founder of Arayhan, which is a community-led initiative that aims to rejuvenate and inspire the Muslim community to follow in the true teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And that was a really extensive bio, mashallah. Thank you for joining me today, Ibtisam. Thank you. Okay, so my very first question for the both of you, and I hope it's not too heavy, how are you both today? I'll go with Dima first. Yeah, I'm doing well, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, what about you, Ibtisam? Yeah, alhamdulillah, as it's, it couldn't be better, alhamdulillah. So I've laid down the setting of what has unfolded in July 2020. Dima, I would firstly like to hear about your personal experience of this event. When you first heard of the news of the lockdown, what was going on for you at that time? Well, um, I was at home with my siblings and I was babysitting and my mom was out. Um, I quickly called her and I said to her, you know, you need to get shopping because I don't think they're letting on else. They already had the police at the bottom of our flats by that point. And I found out maybe four or five o'clock. And the announcement at 12 o'clock was that there may be a lockdown and by 3 o'clock they implemented it. But the issue was they hadn't, it wasn't so widely known for the residents themselves. So people were everywhere. Some people were out, some people were in. Luckily, my parents were out, so they grabbed whatever necessities we might need. My brother was working, so he'd have to come in later. It was quite shocking. <laughs> That's all I can say. SubhanAllah, I would have imagined it must have been so hectic and to find out the news that there might be a lockdown through the news, it's just, it must have been just very shocking. It was infuriating because the the thing is, if it affects, you know, the whole of Victoria, then go by news and, you know, inform everyone at the same time. But if it affects the residents in particular, you know, we have a department of housing that has our contacts 
and, you know, is able to inform us of what's going on. Um, if that communication is not there, then that is one of the issues already present that kind of becomes uncovered in such a situation. Yeah, subhanAllah. And yeah, exactly. And it's just very shocking that nothing was really thought of before they implemented the lockdown. And like you said before, having the police presence was yeah. would have been just very intimidating, subhanAllah. And like just thinking of like, you know, the communities that were living there, it's just they're already scared enough of, of the police. Yeah, they are. Yeah, subhanAllah. And just leading on to what you said, like, did you have any commitments at that time? Like, were you studying? Or oh, you... at that time, so my it was mid-year break. So I was lucky in terms of that it was my holiday period. I didn't have much, but I was looking for some work opportunities and some, I did have some interviews lined up for some things that were supposed to happen in person. So I, I you know, I had to let go of those opportunities, unfortunately, but alhamdulillah, my studies weren't affected primarily and I was planning on spending time with family I hadn't been able to but yeah oh subhanallah oh and like I can't even imagine like having to let go of those opportunities just yeah. because of the circumstances that you were stuck yeah. in yeah oh I can't honestly that was just well alhamdulillah in the end it was like if it's meant to be it was going to be exactly yeah, yeah. and I think that's just beautiful I guess as Muslims as well like yeah if it's like, if it's sort of meant to be for us, then... It will happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. It's really unfortunate that these events have unfolded. And like I said earlier in the podcast, there's just so many gaps in the system. Mm -hmm. And because, like I said, I studied public health. And from a public health perspective, there were just several issues that I thought of. Firstly, I understand that the government had to decide and act quickly to keep us safe in the pandemic. But as the Ombudsman report revealed, the action to detain public housing residents was not based on the advice of Victoria's infectious disease experts. Secondly, because of the government's response, the hard lockdown has prevented residents in public housing towers to access the basic necessities. So it's things like fresh air, exercise, medical care and medical supplies. And as a consequence, this has contributed to poor health and well-being in general. And for your case, Dima, like you, I guess, were not able to access all the opportunities that were lined up for you, subhanAllah. Yeah. And thirdly, and the most important one out of all, the way that information was being relayed to residents were not culturally appropriate at all. And this was one of the many factors that has caused so much harm and distress for the residents. And I think this really links nicely to my next question for you, Dima. Mm. Based on your experience, what makes a service or a program culturally accessible? And why do you think it's important for us to have culturally appropriate services and programs? So my personal experience of what I've seen is culturally appropriate services or programs need to have done their research before planning out whatever they're supposed to service. So if they don't know which community they're going to communicate with, engage with, or how this community acts and what's its values and what is like the do's and don'ts within this community, you can't have any way of engaging. Also, another thing that I find is really important is rather than implementing services where you're perhaps bringing professionals who maybe don't have an experience in engaging with other community, cold communities, in particular, I think it's important to employ those services already there 
And those services might not be like your traditional ones where it's a healthcare or it's a community service, but it could be like a religious one, could be a cultural one, it could be an elder group situation. But implementing those and equip them with the necessities they need to kind of bring forward a service that could communicate with, if it's the healthcare, if it's the community service, if it's whatever this community needs, they can be the kind of like the go-between. And that's really important. Yeah, and exactly. I think one of the things that I've observed anyway is the power of community, especially in the first few days of the lockdown. Everything was just chaotic and it it really came down to the community and the power of community to actually start thinking, okay, this is what we need to do and these are the people that we've identified that need help and let's go from there. And I think the government really learnt from that and, you know, use those people to be the in-between, like you said, to, I guess, give people the resources and, like, you know, the facilities that they need in order to get through the lockdown. Yeah, subhanAllah, you raised really important points. Mm -hmm. And let's sort of move on to the next section of this episode, which involves the different kinds of support that the public housing community has received from the wider community. And like I said before, despite all the chaos that occurred, we realised the power of community and our ability to assist those in need within a short period of time, mashallah. And during the hard lockdown, many community organisations such as the Australian Muslim Social Services Agency, or also known as AMSA, Ubuntu Project and Arayhan came forward to provide the support and help that the public housing community needed. If this um, this question is for you, I've provided a brief introduction of what you do. Can you give a brief summary of Arayhan and what you guys do? Oh, well, thank you so much for this opportunity, um, Adriana. And mashallah, listening to Dima was so inspiring in, in many ways. This organization started with a very small, simple initiative, which was cleaning the masajids. Really, that's how it started. We were just meant to go as a group of sisters came together and said, you know, let's go clean. But it's interesting, uh, I don't know how till today, we changed from that to, okay, there's more need to the community and especially from the sister side. So the mission statement uh, that we as a team have created says, Arihan Connect is an organization that's connecting Muslim women and their families in their journey to enhance growth and well-being through support, balance and quality care. We actively work to inspire positive social change through inclusive and informative programs, as well as encouraging conversations in a safe space. So pretty much it is about empowerment. It's about even just creating a space, safe space, where crucial conversations happen. I think that's the first step to any change in any society is actually having the conversation and talk about what it is we need to work on before we can take the next step. So hopefully that kind of gives you a better idea. But I recall seeing the Shifat series on my social media and I believe this series was an online Zoom space specifically for public housing residents and was hosted by Arayhan and Ubuntu Project. So I probably didn't do any justice with that description, but can you expand on what the Shifat series was and what were some of the interesting things that you've learnt from hosting that series? When we heard and seen the lockdown, I think like everyone else, the first feelings you feel is confused, a lot of anger. 
because even though I don't live in the flats now, but that was a place where I, you know, spent most of my, that's what I lived in my family. Some of my family members still live there. And so there's always that connection. And so to see what was happening, it was just, I think I personally took me a day or two to even just digest and understand that this is actually happening. Because the thing is, we were all going through a lockdown and COVID hit everyone. But I think the way the flats were targeted or the way things were just done, I think everybody knew that it is something wasn't right. So as a team, I remember just being in touch all the time and saying, what can we do? And then we came up with this idea because what had happened is a lot of young people were going out there and talking and from the flats, you know, from the lockdown. And we felt like, okay, like there's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of uh, sadness. There's a lot of rage. There was just mixed of emotions. And I think more than anything, we worried about their well-being because we were thinking, okay, they're found a space where they can actually talk about their anger, but they're not talking about their feelings and they're not. So right away we said, let's give it a try. So when Shifa, uh, and just to kind of explain on the name, Shifa in Arabic means healing. And that's why we wanted just the space to be about healing, not about anything else. So first person I remember contacting was Sister Sumeya Ujibara, which I'm sure many community by now should know her name. And I said, Sister Sumeya, this is an idea we have. Uh, We were thinking, what if we do an online? Because I mean, because of the lockdown, there's no other ways anyways to meet. But what if we create an online space for the youth? It was best to be only for the youth. And because you know, and she said, yeah, that's a great idea. And I'm more than happy to um, help you with that because she's the uh, expert or the counselor. So that was the first thing. I texted her in the morning and I believe she called me by the evening and she came up with the name because I said, we also need a name. And alhamdulillah, like the first session, I think we literally had over 30 youth. So what we do is as a Rehan, we just introduced ourselves and we say the salam and then we hand it over to the counselor. It was quiet. I don't even know what the word is, but we were just really overwhelmed with the feelings and emotions that were coming out. But then a lot of anger was also towards the parents because the youth had felt that we are expressing ourselves in the media and I guess many parents were not happy with that. They wanted mm. them to just, coming from a cultural background where you just do not lash out on your, you know, uh, government course, or leaders course, yeah. or, so there was a lot of, um, we discovered from the uh, sessions that a lot of young people were like very um, upset and hurt by how the parents were not supporting them that way. But we also understand the parents. So from that, we said, well, then it doesn't make sense to work on the youth and with the youth and not, you know, talk to the elderly or talk. So what we did is right away, we created another Shifa space. And a lot of what we found from that space was that the parents wanted to talk about the children and how how they should be um, handled. So they couldn't see you know, eye to eye. eye. And so that was another eye opener. And I'm thinking, okay, so that was good. So alhamdulillah, we had not as many adults come, but we did have a good number. And then one of the mothers on the session mentioned and said, you should also do something for the young children. Mm -hmm. Because I know that one of the children that I know, four-year-old, was actually hiding under the table when they heard about the police being downstairs. So she said, a lot of kids are very traumatized. And that was another aha moment for us because we didn't even think of that. So we created a third Shifa <laughs> session and the children was was probably everyone's favorite because children, we found that they're very honest 
They're um, very open. There's no filter on, you know, what they're feeling you, they're going to tell you, which was a beautiful, but at the same time, there was a lot of emotions and sadness there. And, you know, they had a lot of questions, a lot of confusion. As much as it was maybe the most proactive, it was the hardest one for us to do, I'll be honest. But yeah, alhamdulillah, we were blessed. It was it was a quite a success. And I think a lot of people found it very beneficial. It turned out like, you know, better than we expected, alhamdulillah. But it was much needed. And I think, again, like that's, I know we did that, but I think another thing as a community is, I wish these were the ongoing spaces mm. because it's like we all go through things in life and you always want to have that space where you're just not going to feel judged or you don't have to filter what you're saying. So that's one thing I wish our communities will invest more on, inshallah. Yeah, especially for me as a youth as well, I would appreciate, I guess, having these spaces where I can talk unfiltered because, for example, I think a lot of us can't really have or I guess access you know appropriate counsellors because like I said before in the podcast I feel much more comfortable approaching a Muslim psychologist because I think they would understand from my perspective as a young Muslim woman mm-hmm. and I think having these spaces is very very crucial and very important just to foster and really support and facilitate positive mental health well-being and I think there's ties in really nicely to our next section and it's probably the most important I feel. I think this question goes to both of you. A year on from the whole hard lockdown situation, is there any changes or improvements in the way that government and other organisations are engaging with the public housing community? I probably will go to Dima first before I ask Ibtisam. Yeah, so... In terms of changes or improvements, I could say there are changes. I think any government organisation is very careful now in the way they approach certain communities or in the way they implement certain processes or whatever they need to. Whether it's effective is something we'll only see to tell because with these sort of community engagement um, you know, processes, time tells whether it was effective or not. The other thing is I believe that Having, once again, like a government organization or even a government funded organization come in that is not really well known in the community because of this kind of make thing, makes things hard for the organization to work, for the people to accept it. So I believe using whatever, whatever sort of program there is already there and further expanding on it works better because people are already familiar with that. It also, to be honest, helps employ people from that area. It's a learning process for everyone, not only for the people in the community, but also for the organizations in the area. I met with a few organizations in the area. They've been there for the last 10 years, but they haven't engaged to the level that maybe Rayhan has. They haven't engaged with the community to the level that AMSA has. So my thing is, you, it's a matter of thinking outside the box. You can't think within the box. You can't do the same sort of procedure with every single community. You need to analyze it. And those changes have happened. If they're effective, we'll only, you know, see. Yeah. yeah. And I think you raised really important points in that we already have the organizations. We already have the capacity, the power, like I guess the people. We just need extra funding. We need resources to really expand on that. Yeah. And 
Did you have anything to add if this up? Because yeah. I think it really ties into what Arayhan is doing. I was just going to say, Dima said it really beautifully. The thing is, if you don't know an organization, there's not already a relationship or a connection, there's no way you're going to trust them when things get hard. Like when we were doing the Shifa, Shifa is about being vulnerable, about being open, about, and there's no way, no way we could have had that if we didn't have the relationship already established. So there was already a trust. We were active. Even if they didn't attend our events, they knew who we were. We knew that we were consistent. We always had programs. So I think even for the organizations, it's very important that you keep that relationship ongoing. It's not, you know, when there's a problem, I'm here to kind of save you. You know you know what I mean? Like yes. that just doesn't work. doesn't work with anyone um, because that's not how human beings work. You're like you need to have a, a trust, a relationship so that when you actually need to do something, then they know who you are. So definitely that's one thing that I still see a lot of organizations. I don't think they have understood that because we were hearing so many names and now where's everyone? Yeah. So that's another thing I think that needs to be thought about that you need to have ongoing. Even if there's no COVID, let's have, um, you, can, you can create different programs for different age groups, even a simple barbecue every now and then, you yeah. know, so that they actually know who you are. They know who, what this organization is about. The core of everything is trust. If you don't trust the people that are there with you to do the work or to you're just not going to give them yourself. It's 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 a very crucial component that I think the government and all these, you know, most of the organizations, I can't say all of them, have are still not understanding the importance um, of that. So, yeah, yeah, that's one thing. I And it's not to say that they can't be involved in the community, but I'd rather see partnerships happen. Exactly. Because you have to be in really smart with the way you go about things now. I do see change in the way that they're tentative to kind of approach. They are doing their research more. They are asking, okay, so how do I... I had someone who had, like, their organization is at the bottom of one of their buildings, the educational organization, and they he asked me, so what do we do? Like, how do we communicate? And they've been there for the last 10 years. So the asking is doing well. The partnerships with the local communities is, you know, the the trusted, you know, organizations is what works. And especially this could be like a mutual beneficial relationship because say the trusted organization doesn't have the necessities or the you know the equipment but then the other new organization does this is a way to gain trust Mm. it's a way to be consistent it's a way to come culturally appropriate so I think that's important I think partnership is the way to go yeah I had another question for both of you but you've just answered my question (laughs) and I think the most important thing when we want to work with communities is trust and building partnerships because that's essentially how we can work together as a community and improve the living situations for all of us and it's not just exclusive to the public housing community but also the wider community as well especially for us being Muslim being of from a Celt background I think that's essentially the core of any program and services that we have for us it's always been we need the support and I don't mean support as in of course you always need the financial support you need the but I'm talking about if we create a program or a space and you kind of don't have everyone coming or most people then to me I think I find that the community still hasn't 
understood the importance of spaces that, you know, give you the opportunity to talk about your issues, uh, well-being, mental health. So we find it very challenging that we'll have amazing programs and we'll have amazing speakers. But until today, I can say attendance is a big, you know, and I understand people are busy and everyone is just doing million things, which is that's like, but we still haven't prioritized such programs and events. So I think that's one thing as a community we need to work on is if you know that any organization, you know, be it from Muslim organization, non-Muslim organization, anything that is organized, it's important for you to go and check it out. Even if you don't feel like it's something that is, that doesn't apply to me, you might know someone else that can benefit from you going and getting the information. So I think we need to be more invested time-wise. We need to prioritize it just like we prioritize going to to work, we prioritize going to school, events. Um, for example, in our communities, you know, events such as celebrations and weddings, you literally plan your, you make sure you have the babysitter, you make sure you've got the, you know, everything is, is planned around that. I just wish from the community side that there was more investment on that. That's one. Another one is financial support is, I mean, without money, you can't really do much. So money is another one. I think even these organizations that are outside the community need to, like Dima mentioned, more of finding organizations that are already working like ourselves. There's Ubuntu, there is Podium. There's quite a few organizations actually that work especially with youth. I think it's important as a community to find them and actually do partnerships with them and say, we can give you this resource and, you know, happy to. Because a lot of times it's like you have only limited resources. So that's another thing I Mm -hmm. think we need to, it's a partnership. We need to really, really um, focus on that and the community. Because like Dima said, it's, it's very important that the people that are working with you understand who you are. It's a crucial. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Anything else that do you want to add? I, I couldn't have said it any better, to be mm. honest. Um, do your research, approach those already trusted organizations and, you know, do a partnership. And I, I think one of the most important things is, based on what I've seen recently, is funding. Yes. These local uh, programs and services need funding because they're doing great work. They already have the people there. They just need the resources. I think that's something that the government should work on because the way you're going to communicate with a, you know, a community like the one in the towers is having different organizations. And this is not just to say that they have to be specifically, like we mentioned, there, there's a large percentage of, you know, African Australians living in those towers, but there was percentages or small populations of, we had, I think, Vietnamese, we had Cantonese speakers and we had Mandarin speakers. But the thing is, there was no one there to kind of cater to that. And that was a very difficult matter. So it's also people in the towers being neighborly and knowing that, hey, my friend can't go down because they have a disability. Let me go down and listen and get them what they need. Because as Muslims, we do have a responsibility for our neighbors. And that's one of the things that angered me the most was my neighbor was next door. They didn't speak any English. They speak Vietnamese. And I hadn't done my responsibility to know what they needed, and I couldn't communicate with them nor help them. Mm. So that's one of the things that you get stuck with as a Muslim, especially in those towers during that period. So I think that, like Dr. Sam had mentioned, partnership with locals and also doing your research about who's there, what they need help with. 
talking with the locals, they'll give you all the information you need. Exactly. And I can't even wrap this up. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how do I wrap this up because I think, do you mind if this, um, you've just shared so much of your insight and your knowledge and Dima, you've just perfectly wrapped up this entire podcast for me. So thank you. Okay. Um, and I just, before we end and wrap it up, I just want to thank you both for coming. Your insights, your knowledge, everything that you've talked about has just been super valuable. For me personally, I think there's a lot that I've learned and there's a lot that the listeners can learn as well. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. No worries. Inshallah, I hope that everything that you've shared today will be beneficial for others who may be listening to this podcast. Thank you to our listeners for listening to today's podcast. We are excited to bring forth many more in the upcoming weeks. Stay tuned and watch this space for our next topic. In the meantime, go and check out our Instagram pages, amwchr underscore youth and amwchr and give us a follow links will be provided in the description below reach out if you have any comments or questions and we cannot wait to bring you more great content until next time if at any point during this podcast you felt distressed we encourage you to contact the following helplines which are also listed in the description box below hi at line 1300 993 398 eHeadspace 1-800-650-890, Lifeline 13 11 14, Kids Helpline 1-800-55-1800, Beyond Blue 1-300-224636, QLife 1-800-184-527. Otherwise, ring 000 in the event of an emergency. Please note these are Australian-based numbers only, and should you be residing outside of Australia, we encourage you to reach out to relevant local health providers or your local GP.